You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning, Thrive. It's good to have you here this day. Uh, It's a week after Easter, but we can still say Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Heck yeah. No. Well, the early church didn't say heck yeah. The early Christians said he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. But, you know, it's thrive. What do I expect from Hugo, right? Oh, my goodness. It's good to have you here. And we're starting a new series, as we mentioned last week, and it's called The Way of Wisdom, or as we are going through Proverbs through the month of April, the rest of April, and into May. And then we have a new series for the summer, which is, I think, uh, the title is The Story of Us. Not quite This Is Us, you know, the show that was on TV, but The Story of Us, which we're going to look at different biblical characters, you know, Adam and Eve through Jacob, through Abraham. And they're really the story of us. It's not just about them. Actually, the past in Scripture is described to also point to the future and to point to our lives. And we're supposed to learn from each of these characters, especially all the faults and foibles that they are filled with. We kind of see ourselves. So that's going to be an exciting one for the summer. Uh, Just a couple announcements. First of all, um, we are having a hangout tonight at our house. Again, 5 to 8. We'd love to have you there. Uh, We're supplying uh, pork loin and grilled chicken. And um, I think we'll have uh, roasted potatoes as well. And you bring a side or a dessert. If you're new to the idea, you will find directions over at the uh, Connection Center. We'd love to have you. We believe. We're really about relationships, about fellowship, about community. And I'll tell you, a lot of people have missed it over the last few years. Man, it's been tough. You know what I mean? And I've seen it especially among uh, the college students at FGCU, those that I teach and those that um, I just kind of connect with. And oh my goodness, right? There's a lot of disconnection over the last few years, and it's time to get back to be the family of God. And I think that is more um, salutary. I know that's a weird word. Have you ever heard that word salutary before? It's actually in part of the the old liturgy that it is meat, right, and salutary. When I grew up, I always thought it was meat, right, and celery. I never understood... (laughs) What sal- but salutary means it's kind of salvific. It, it brings salt. Salt, by the way, uh, which is the idea of salvation. It's all tied together. It seasons life. It gives life. It brings something. Community is part of that. You see that in the book of Acts, especially after the resurrection, that the church came together and had fellowship with one another, cared for one another, gave of themselves. And that is, I know, a new word for some, salutary, okay? Not celery. So have you heard this poem before? Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Yeah, Robert Frost, the road not taken. And it ends like this. I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And that's the difference we're looking for in this series on wisdom. 
the road that's not taken by the majority of people in this world, but makes all the difference in our lives, is the road of wisdom. So we're going to read in the book of Proverbs through these different parts of the book kind of thematically. And this week, we're going to be reading in Proverbs 3, Proverbs 10, and Proverbs 24, uh, these verses. So first, Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the grain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profits better than gold. Then Proverbs 10, the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. And Proverbs 24. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? So for your life and mine, I've said this before, there are thousands, possibly millions of different voices bombarding you on a daily basis. You know, every advertisement, every voice on the radio, every talk show, every event, every electronic device, every social media, there are thousands of messages bombarding and trying to get your attention over time. But the Bible really says there's really only two voices that you'll hear in any given day. Only two. Out of the thousands that you hear, it's two. Jesus said it this way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So there are two ways. There's the majority and there's the minority. There's the wide and there's the narrow. And... Those two ways are the ways of wisdom and the way of folly. Those are the only two voices you really hear. It's either folly or wisdom, one or the other. And wisdom, by the way, is not just information. We have information overload. It's not just facts. It's not your IQ that makes you wise. It's not even so much just trying to do the right thing all the time, although that's part of it. Wisdom is more about having a grounded understanding of both yourself, this world, and God's ways. Okay? According to the book of Proverbs, now we're going to look at today the two great tests we all face in life. And how through them we can gain wisdom or we can lose out on it, depending on how we handle it. There are two particular situations that have happened to you. I know some of you are going through one or the other right now. And you regularly face some of these things. And they're both moments of spiritual possibility and growth or spiritual danger and diminishment. If you pass them, those tests, you'll become wiser. You'll know more about your own nature, 
the world, God's ways. But if you fail them, well, if you don't respond to them properly, they often just reconfirm the foolishness you've already had. You become either more hardened or bittered or out of touch or egotistical. So we're going to look at these passages today that talk about these two different tests, these great tests we all face. And we're going to answer the questions, what are they? Why do they work? And how can we actually pass them? Probably one of the most famous verses, one of, not the most, maybe, maybe the verse in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, is the most famous in Proverbs. But the second most famous, maybe, is Proverbs 3 that we didn't read just before. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Now, there's a lot of wisdom in just this passage, the fact that when you face any circumstance, that you don't just trust what your gut instinct is right away. You don't just do what feels right. You don't actually just go with the opinions of others. You seek what the Lord wants in a situation. You know, because our lives, in a sense, are just like what Robert Frost said, lots of little forks in the road. Many, sometimes multiple forks at once. You look around and you've got six choices. Which one are we to make? Which job should I take? Where should I live? How should I live? Do I go out with this person? Do I do this? Do I do that? And the question is, how do you make those decisions? And when somebody has wisdom, they're able to navigate those decisions with discernment, with understanding. A, a wisdom can guide you to make the choices so that you can have deeper character development and wisdom, whereas foolishness just can lead you down you know, a rabbit hole that leads nowhere. So the question, though, is if I don't have wisdom, how do I gain wisdom? Because I don't, you don't naturally have wisdom. You don't naturally have wisdom. So, there are situations that come up in your life that will either grow you in wisdom or move you into more folly. So in verse 9 and 10, we have the first in Proverbs chapter 3, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And then right after it, we just have juxtaposed to that this other passage, uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Be weary of his reproof, or be weary of it. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father his son in whom he delights. It's like, wait a minute, which one is it? Is it prosperity or is it adversity? And the answer is yes, those are the two tests. Those are the two tests. Now, we don't get a lot of both necessarily, or we get a balance of both often in life. Um, some of you, you get great grades in some classes, you know, and others not so much, right? Sometimes you jive with a professor, sometimes you don't, right? Sometimes you get a lot of friends, you become popular, and sometimes you don't. But most of us, it's kind of that middling way, the middling way where um, neither happen to the extreme, but it is in those moments of either prosperity and success 
or in times of adversity and suffering, then we face great tests to who we are. Why? Because those two experiences will bring out what's already in your heart. Do you know that? It'll bring out. Under times of prosperity, it's amazing how all of a sudden I'm boosted up, my ego starts to grow, and because I've had success in this, I think I'm good at everything. And boy, look at me, and I should... And then in times of, dis, uh, in times of affliction, all of a sudden I lose all confidence, and I'm not sure, and I am not n- know what's going on, but do I understand God's will in both? and how he is growing me through them both. Because it brings out in my heart what's already there. C.S. Lewis talks about this. Um, He gives a great example of what these two tests are like when he writes, if there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rat. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar, but if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. So, the traffic doesn't make me impatient. I'm already impatient. The long lines at the grocery store don't make me frustrated That's already there. My expectations are out of whack. When I gain success in life, it doesn't make me selfish. My selfishness comes out. And when I face difficulties in life, my intolerance, that also comes out. It's seen for what it is. Those are the two tests that we all face. Some of you right now are going through times of great success. Okay? And some of you are going through times of adversity. Some of you face a very difficult, and we, I mean, Ian, oh my goodness, right? Talk about adversity. For some, they're still not able, like they don't have their house to live in yet. It's not there. Others still have not recovered from the pandemic economically or socially. Great adversity. We have faced them both. So why, I guess, are these real tests? Why do they work? How do they work? So as we get into Proverbs 10, I think it comes out. In verse 16, it says this, The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. And then when the tempest passes, in verse 25, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. bit surprising, the first one, right? And instead of using wise and fool at this point in time in Proverbs, he uses righteous and wicked. And you might go like, ooh, I don't know which one. Righteous? Who's righteous? Righteousness in the book of Proverbs is not about how perfect you are at doing anything. Okay? It's really that you are rightly related to your God and you understand him and his ways and you trust him outside of yourself for all the good gifts that he gives. 
Wickedness, on the other hand, is not that the person doesn't believe in God, doesn't care. It's the fact that a wicked person is someone who can believe in God, but lives as if they are. <laughs> you know, that uses other people, that takes advantage of situations, that just tries to benefit self rather than others, where the righteous person understands life is about being rightly related to the God of the universe, is about using myself, my wealth, my position, my power, my whatever I have for the sake of others, not for the sake of self. So this passage, the wages of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin, really says if you are a self-giving person, then your prosperity will actually bring you wisdom and you will use whatever comes your way, success, acclaim, finances, not for yourself, but for a platform to promote and support other people and community. But a selfish person, when they gain prosperity, just feeds into their selfishness and leads them to cut off to others. You can find this just all over the place within the scriptures. Jesus tells this, the parable of the rich fool who talks to himself, not to the community. Look, I've got all this grain. What am I going to do with it all? I'm going to build my barns. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And he basically just spends it all on self. And God says, you fool. You fool. You're without any sense. And that is also why Jesus says, as we said before in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it are many. And he's not being hyperbolic here. The easy way, the majority way, the human propensity we all have is to, in good times, to use it for self, to build ourselves up, to fill ourselves, knowledge puffing us up, our situation making us feel good. That's the normal way. That's the wisdom the world says is so wise, taking advantage, but it leads, according to Jesus, to destruction. Pride doesn't just come before the fall. Pride actually is the fall. And as I've said before, and many people have quoted it in one form or another, so I don't even need to attribute it, it's like there's only two types of people in this world, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God ultimately says, okay, have it your way, your will be done. That's the difference between the wise and the fool. And then in verse 20, uh, 10, 25, he says, when the storms hit, you can be swept away and disconnected from God because you find your self-security not in God but in yourself. But on the other hand, when the storms come, the righteous because they are rightly related to God and trusting him through it, they are preserved. Now, at this moment in time, you might be, and this is always a danger into preaching something like this, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I wish so-and-so were here today. They really need to hear that. And if that's the case, then I probably have failed you and myself as well, because when I read these passages, um, I'm not thinking, look at how wise I am. Look at I'm on the right path. I've got my act together. I'm part of the right. I'm scared. I've got some trepidation about this. Too often, I've been the fool. 
I mean, when times are good, it's amazing how easy it is to me to think, oh, look at what I've done. I've made this happen. Everything's so good. And look at me. I'm better than. What? And then when times get bad, it's so easy to just kind of be centered on self, focused on self, trying to just get to a comfortable place again and not learn a thing from it. It's so easy to play the fool and to be like the wicked. And so the real question today is not that I, how do you, how, whether these tests come your way, prosperity or adversity, success or failure. It's how in the world do we ever pass them? Anybody pass them? How can we pass them? I think James, his book, his letter, it's really like a sermon. James is really a, an entire um, New Testament book, like Proverbs, that's all about wisdom. And in it, he says this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. That is so counterintuitive, isn't it? So counterintuitive. In other words, you be humble in success and be comforted with the gospel in adversity. What? But that's what the gospel is really all about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what helps you, helps me, to be able to get the right perspective so we can pass the test knowing the one who has passed both of these tests. You see, the gospel of that runs throughout the scriptures from Adam and Eve all the way through the book of Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, is the fact that I am actually so wicked I am such a fool that I'm the one that put Jesus on the cross. And yet, I am so absolutely loved and forgiven that Jesus went to the cross willingly. I didn't put him there. He willingly went there. And the fact that I am forgiven and loved more than all my foolishness and faults and failures, it covers them all and more. He does more than enough. He doesn't just cover a little of, or enough of, or maybe just skimps by. No, this is total and complete over the whole top. That's the gospel. And when you understand the gospel, then you understand how to pass these tests. You see, religion will not let you pass these tests. Religion or moralism will... That's when you say, okay, I have to do these things, and if I do these things, and if I follow these rules, and if I try to be wise, and then I do good, and like a religious person, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I give of myself, I give of my time. Now I can, that will not pass the test. So all it will do is either make you feel confident about what you've done, and look down on others, and gain a self-righteousness, not the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or you will always be despairing you haven't done enough. And even people who don't believe in God or are not religious that might be secular in their outlook still think somehow the universe owes them. Or if their life is going well, it must be because of something they did. 
You know, I hear commercials on TV where somebody like a lawyer says, I have worked hard for everything I've, and it's like, really? I think it's all gift, but if you want to think that you've done it all, well, you didn't even create yourself, you know? You didn't ask for your brains. You didn't ask for the family you were born into. You didn't ask for when you were born or where you were born, the country that you live in. Those were all gifts, freely given. Isn't it amazing? So good times often make people confident but not humble, and hard times make people despair and not confident in the Lord. The gospel allows you to see that prosperity is God's blessing and that it is your opportunity to be more Christ-like in how you serve and give. And adversity, when you experience hardship, you know that God is actually teaching you too. In this text, it says that he disciplines us. It doesn't say those whom he loves, some of those whom he loves, he disciplines. He says everyone whom he loves, he disciplines. Everyone. Adversity, hardship, reproof, none of it is a lot of fun. But Proverbs says when adversity comes, it's like a father reproving his child. In fact, it says... Um, the word for discipline here in the book of Proverbs at this point in time is this word masur, which means to correct, to discipline, or to chasten. That word is never used of punishment. When God, it says, he's punishing the nations for their iniquity or something in the Old Testament, a totally different word is used. This is only used in a loving relationship between a parent and a child or between God and his people. He brings you to a point not to knock you down to size, but to a point of reality about yourself and about this world so that you can learn and you can grow. Vitor Westhell, uh, he's a theologian from Brazil. He put it this way, God saves us when we are at the stage of humbleness, brokenness, and depravity because that is when God reaches us, not because we have made our way down there, but rather because we are no longer in denial over our condition. Humility is not a technique to get God's grace. It is about being plain and honest to ourselves and the world by naming things for what they are. We let ourselves be who we are. Like I've said before, Jesus in the New Testament was accused of being a friend of sinners, and his response would be, yep, that's the only kind I have. If you can't be a sinner, you're never going to be a friend of Jesus. It's the only kind of friends he has. Humility isn't actually getting down in yourself. Humility is not something you can manufacture. Humility is not some, okay, if I strive hard enough and think negatively about... No, humility is not thinking about yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Your focus turns to God, not to yourself. 
The problem with prosperity and adversity, those tests, they bring out the egotism in me. Either I will think I don't deserve it, or I think I do deserve it, or I think this, or I think that, and somehow I'm still focused on myself. I can see the rats in my basement. I can see how all of a sudden I never realized the desires I actually have. Look, this money has just made me want to, what? And the success, it's getting to my head. It's so easy to fall into that. Or when I'm going through difficult times, I all of a sudden realize how impatient I am, how self-centered I am, how focused on just me, me, me I am. And it is at those times that what God is doing, both tests, is trying to teach me. He's trying to get me out of myself and into his son, Jesus Christ, where I belong. Do you get that? God wants you not in yourself and focused on you, but focused being in Christ where you belong. Ernst Kaseman, he puts it this way. This sounds pretty harsh, but it's true. The dying son of God glorifies us by humbling us to the deepest degree. He illuminates by confronting us inexorably with the truth about ourselves. He heals by placing us among the poor in spirit. All this can be brought down to the common denominator, the justification of the ungodly. That's what it's really about, is God placing you in Jesus Christ your whole salvation, your whole identity, everything is in him. Just look at Jesus. He was offered, by the way, he faced these two great tests. Out in the wilderness, it was the tempter who offered him the wealth of all the nations, all the acclaim and glory he could possibly have. He turns it down cold. He will only worship God alone and not gain the easy way. He never, by the way, let the crowds and their accolades and their praises get to him. He never was influenced to make a decision based on how many people like me. He was always focused on his father's will and our good, no matter what that did. And so he didn't even use the power as being the son of God, Philippians 2 will say, for himself, but he became a servant and poured out his life as a ransom for many. And when he faced that adversity like no other, the cross of Jesus Christ, when he was facing correction, reproof, actually the punishment for our sins, and he didn't deserve any of it. He, didn't, he himself was being considered the complete fool. Absolute shame and disgust upon that cross. He did it all to show that God's foolishness of foolishly loving us, of, of going beyond it all in loving us infinitely so much that that is more powerful than any wisdom humanity has ever had to do anything. Because it is not through coercive power that God changes this world or changes your life or mine. It is through the sacrificial love of Jesus. And that's how we know that anything that comes our way, it's for your good. All things work together for good. Because he did not spare his own son, Romans 8 says. He gave him up for us all. Everything else falls into place with that. So when you're given success or prosperity, you can be humble and realize it's all a gift from God, and use it for the sake of others. 
And when you face adversity, you can be comforted knowing that you are a child of God and that he has suffered it all for you and with you and is with you in it. And that's what can actually change your life. Changing your life does not come from good advice, as good as it is from the book of Proverbs. A changed life comes from when you see the Son of God and what he has done for you. You know, um, people do what they want to do. Have you ever noticed that? And then they come up with reasons why they want to do it afterwards. You do what you desire. So what has to happen is your desires have to change. Your desires have to change. David Zoll says people change only when their desires do. He's right. What changes your desires is seeing Jesus, who becomes a fool to make you wise. He faces adversity to give you the kingdom. And when that changes you, then all of a sudden, you can go through prosperity or adversity, clinging to him and becoming more like him and growing in wisdom. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much this day. You've done, <laughs> you do work in our life. Sometimes we wonder what's going on. We wonder how it's working and what's happening. And yet, Lord, through the times of success and failure, through times of prosperity and adversity, through times of, of both suffering and um, just exaltation and joy, Lord, you are working. And you are working and um, bringing us out of ourselves and placing us so that we become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. You are conforming us as Romans 8 says, to the image of your son. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that he passed the tests. He gave us all. He is the one righteous. And through his righteousness, we gain the kingdom. We thank you for this grace, Lord, that is so lavish. It covers us completely and thoroughly. Today, we lift up many who need your care. We lift up Zoe as she is... Uh, facing this, the pain um, that she has gone through this week with some illness, and pray that you would just be with her as she is uh, a mother and a wife and a servant, Lord, and your servant. We lift up to you um, BJ, a friend of uh, members at Thrive, um, who is facing a diagnosis and a heart condition and all, Lord, and we pray your healing there. We lift up to you Haley's mother, who is awaiting um, test results, whether she has cancer and how it has spread and if it has spread, Lord. And we commend her into your care and the whole family into your care. We lift up Otto and Laurel as Laurel will undergo procedures in the next uh, couple of weeks. We lift up Lord um, uh, Dick and his migraines and pray your healing upon him. And Lord, we lift up uh, little Kai as he will undergo surgery in just a couple of weeks. We pray you would bless the surgeons and all. This brain tumor is removed completely and that you just do such a great miracle. Everybody rejoices, Lord. Your will be done in all of these situations and more, Lord, in our lives. Through prosperity and adversity, Lord, we want to grow closer to you because you are the one who has given us all, who has given us life, who has given us, uh, <laughs> you know, who's given us new life and your Holy Spirit. 
Lord, as we uh, come to a time of uh, the offering, we pray that you just move us, change our hearts and our desires, that they align more with you. When we see, O oh Lord, just how easy it is, how easily we are tempted to fail these tests of both prosperity and adversity, we ask, Lord, you would forgive us and that you would renew us and that you would create in us a right spirit within us that is aligned to you and your will and your ways, that we may show your glory. So forgive us, renew us, and lead us, Lord, that we delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. All this we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.